heard across the Resonate Regional Radio Network. It's my time, it's my life. I hope you will come along. This is Rural Queensland Today with Ben Dobbin. Good morning and welcome to Rural Queensland Today for this Tuesday morning, the 7th of February, 2023. Wowee, we're into Feb. Big, big show for everybody. A very good morning to everybody listening to us through 4SB in Kingaroy, 4ZR Roma, 4VL in Charleville, in Emerald, 4HI, good morning, 4LM Mount Isa, 4LG Longridge, 4GC Charter Towers in the Hot Country Network, good morning to you. So much to get through on this busy day and I hope everybody is doing well and enjoying what they are doing wherever they are in this great state of Queensland. We're going to catch up with David Littleproud very shortly. Tim Scott has got a really exciting way forward for testing his cattle and traceability. He is obviously, him and his wife have got this amazing business and they've started something pretty special. Only time will tell how it goes. We're going to talk with Peter Rutherford, the CEO of the Rural Doctors Association, and give you an update on the big country sale and everything else going on in this great state. Big show for you, Rural Queensland today. Let's get into it. You're with Ben Dobbin. It is Tuesday morning, the 7th of February. A very good morning to everybody listening to us across the Resonate Broadcast Network, wherever you are. David Littleproud to join us next. Welcome back to Rural Queensland today. Leader of the National Party is David Littleproud. He joins us this morning. David, good morning, mate. Back in Parliament. Uh, it's all beginning again. Yeah, mate. Back to back to school. Yeah. Uh, you know, but uh, obviously uh, a big year ahead. And, you know, we want to hold a government account, but we still want to be constructive as an opposition. If there's good ideas, uh, particularly for Regional Australia, we, we can't wait two and a half years for an election for us to hope to get back in. We, we need to make sure we deliver and work constructive as we can. But when they do the wrong thing, we're going to call them out. Well, they've been doing the wrong thing. There's no two ways about it. And the Prime Minister, I, I don't know, he's a mate of yours and, and he, he's a decent bloke away from this. I, 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 from the political landscape, you know, but some of the underhand... What he said at the election and now what is going on is very, very different. He is bowing to the minorities and it is a real, real concern. He's backflipped, I see, in the last 24 hours on Alice Springs. Um, I mean, they were very quick to shut down Alice Springs and within six months it went to anarchy out out there and it's horrific what is going on out there. Um, Mate, they they were warned. And this is the the thing is – they were, they were warned by Indigenous voices. There are two Indigenous voices in this parliament already from Alice Springs. The member for Lingiari, Marion Scrimmager, and, and Jacinda Price, a senator. They both live in Alice Springs. They both told the government not to get rid of these grog bands. So now they want to create a voice. Well, they had two voices in the parliament already that the government ignored. And let me tell you why they ignored it. And it's the same not only for grog bands, but it's also for the cashless debit card. They got rid of the cashless debit card and they said they're taking that away because it took away the dignity of Indigenous people. Well, what about the dignity of the women and children that are hiding from the perpetrators who are high on drugs and alcohol because they're using their social security payments to to go and buy that rather than putting food on the table for their family? I mean, you know, this this is where ideology doesn't meet practical reality. And the practical reality are, you have to keep, as a government, your Australian people safe. That's a primary responsibility of every government. And to do that, sometimes you've got to govern for the greater good rather than the individual. And this is where this government is just working on ideology. And I think they're playing all this ideological stuff because they're trying to take your attention away from what's coming out of your wallets. What's coming out of your wallets is increased cost of living because of their energy policy, 
because of their ag policy, you're paying more at the checkout, uh, and your interest rates. And this is all because uh, they have an ideology, and Jim Chalmers wrote 6,000 words over the summer uh, about how he's going to reshape capitalism. Well, let me tell you this some just simple, simple principles of economics that no Jim Chalmers or anyone can change. It's, it's, we're part of a global economy, and that's demand and supply. And with energy, they haven't talked about supply. They're letting gas run, supplies run down, so your prices keep going up. They took away the workforce with the ag visa, so farmers aren't planting as much, abattoirs aren't processing as much, so supplies gone down, your prices gone up at the grocery store. And the way and what they're spending is meaning your interest rates going up uh, and putting inflationary pressure on you. So you know this is where Australians just need to take a deep breath and understand what's important to them. What's important to them is they're able to put bread and butter on the table, get their kids to school and have a holiday once a year at least. That's what we we should do as a government and then get the hell out of your lives. Yeah, I agree with it 100%. The Greens lost a senator, which means entail yesterday. I mean, and just talk me through this. You would think that's a vote for the, uh, you know, they lose a vote in the Senate for the Labor Party if, if the wording is not right and if the legislation isn't right. Yeah, well, Lydia Thorpe, I mean, you wouldn't know what she'd do. Let's, no. let's be honest. Uh, but, uh, but she's she, left she's the Greens. She has left the Greens. Yes, she has. And she'll, she'll be an independent. She's basically saying that uh, her position is that she wants to, she wants to have a, um, uh, a treaty before, uh, before the voice. So she's off on another tangent altogether uh, as well. So, look, where Lydia Thorpe stands on other issues, she said she's going to work with the Greens on the environment. Uh, but other things, then there is uh, a slither of hope that maybe – uh, we can instill just a little bit of common sense in her on some other practical issues that she may be able uh, to to hold the government to account on. Yeah, and that's the big thing, isn't it? It, it is just, you know, it, the Senate is is a shamozzle at the moment because of the way the system is set up. And we've got another three years, haven't we? Um, we've got another, well, maybe longer than that, six years till uh, she can leave. It's quite a difficult situation, that. Can we talk about one thing? Windora, it's going to rejoice up. Uh, Upgraded Health Clinic opens up after a decade-long battle um, in outback Queensland. Like, I mean, I don't want to be negative, but it's a great thing. But, it, you know, is it too little too late or finally they've listened? Well, yeah, finally. And, and look, I've got to say uh, this is where, uh, you know, the primary responsibility, as I said earlier, is to keep Australians safe. And as government, state and federal, have got to make sure they provide these services. It doesn't matter your postcode. I mean, we've got a case in Mitchell where, you know, we're flat out getting doctors there as well. Um, this is this is a real challenge, and some of the, some of the ideology isn't working. And the state government has dropped the ball uh, in terms of not just uh, healthcare in remote places, but even in regional places. Maternity wards are being shut down in places like Gladstone and Chinchilla. Uh, you know, you, I was born in Chinchilla. You can't you can't have a baby there. Seven and a half thousand people live in Chinchilla. So you know, and when Laura Springborg was health minister. He actually got waiting lists down and got, got the health system humming. There was no waiting list. There was no ramping. And he did with less money because he put KPIs on, on the health system that they actually had to perform tasks. They actually had to deliver services. And they were held to account for it. Um, and, and this is where the challenge is just some decent old common sense in running some of these departments. And unfortunately, ministers let bureaucrats uh, get around them and run around them. With uh, with big words and, and big yeah. big programs that don't actually make a practical a practical uh, impact on the communities that they're there for. But this is great for Windora. It's fantastic, but it's you know you never say uh, it's too late. I'm I'm always glass half full sort of guy. 
So it's great that it's there, but you know this is this is just uh, systematic of, of the whole system in Queensland. Anastasia Palaszczuk's lost control of the health system, and she's lost control of the streets. Yeah, and and you're dead right. Hey, talk to me about aged care. Um, there's a string of community, government, and industry leaders who have watched um, as you've turned the first sod uh, on the development of Chinchilla in the Allura Village. Now, um, this is going to be huge, but we need a lot more aged care than what we are. It, it, it's about looking forward for the future. We just haven't got enough of it. No, and particularly in, in the bush. And, you know, I think, to be honest, I don't think we did enough in government. We called a Royal Commission to get to the bottom of it, but I don't think we acted swiftly enough in getting dollars out, and particularly for regional remote. So we came up with great ideas about home care, and home care is great because it keeps people in their homes longer. But in the bush, um, you want to age in place because invariably when you do need to leave your own home, you don't want to leave your family. And we need those great facilities like Allura at Chinchilla. I actually grew up in Allura when mum and dad used to go away. I'd stay with the people who rent Colin Bath Taylor. Yep. And I used to basically live half my childhood at Allura. And, and, but they were places that were made by the community. And this is, this is the opportunity that I think we've got to make sure that we, particularly these community-run organisations, that we gave them $10 a head uh, extra a day I think they were talking about pumping that up this year, another $16. And there was a review into uh, looking to index that even further for regional and remote places because of the cost. And we, we simply need to make this viable for these communities so that we can age in place. And, and sadly, the Labor government took away the Building Better Regions Fund. Uh, just my place at, at Winton, we were all lined up to try and have them secure $10 million to be able to have a facility in Winton, a community-run facility that, that was going to work with providers like Church of Christ uh, and Southern Cross Care to come and give that expert care that they could stay age in place rather than have to go to Longreach. And that's the sort of stuff that government should do, to give that capital injection for, for the infrastructure and then let those providers work with the community to have a solution. And I know in Chinchilla, Southern Cross Care have done an outstanding job there in turning Chinchilla around and saving Tara the Western Downs Council was going to yep. shut Tara and to Southern Cross, they're using it as a hub and spoke model now out of Chinchilla. And, and this is the, the smart stuff that Jason Elvering from Southern Cross Care, the CEO, is working through in looking at, at, at emulating what he's done in Chinchilla in other places. So using a bigger centre like Chinchilla and then have a hub and spoke where if you need acute care, you come to Chinchilla, but you can stay in Tara or, or in Miles. And those are the sort of things, that, the different thinking we've got to think to get through regional Australia to help them to make sure we can age in place. Uh, and I think that's important. It's important the federal government continues on with it. Um, we're going to be constructive in trying to help them come up with those solutions and make sure that regional Australia get get a, get a, a go at it. And I think it's very important that we provide that and provide that sooner rather than later. And to say, to be honest, I think we, we could have done better as a government on that one. Do you feel that this voice is going to dominate um, the discussion um, for the next – and a lot of stuff won't be getting through. And the voice movement that they want, is that just appeasing the minority groups um, in the metropolitan areas? Because I know a lot of the Aboriginal elders don't feel it's necessary, and I say this with the deepest respect. Do you feel yeah. that this is just the government bowing down to the the Greens and other movements? Yeah, mate, mate, look, I think we've got to have a respectful conversation about this and, and – the government's coming to this with genuine intent, and so too are the Nats. And we come to this with genuine intent about trying to close the gap. And we don't believe, if, if you want to get to closing the gap, 
adding another layer of bureaucracy will not work. And, and so what their model is, is one that we've been down before, a representative model. And for, for regional remote Indigenous Australians, what that means is for our mob in my part of the world, they'll be probably in one region. And that means they'll, they'll get probably one or two representatives. They'll cover seven, 800,000 square kilometres, hundreds of different communities, different tribes that, that have different needs and different opportunities they want to explore. And so you're going to ask one person to go to Canberra and to try and actually, to actually represent that. I mean, this is where you already have that voice. You have me. I, you have 227 representatives in this parliament and, and 11 of those are Indigenous Australians already. And so if, if you think that you don't have that voice, I'm sorry, you already do. There's over a thousand consultative groups to Indigenous, to Indigenous Australians on government policy already. Yeah. So you're going to add another one? And just put this through the context of Alice Springs. Not only did they ignore the two elected representatives already, Indigenous representatives already in Alice Springs, it wouldn't have changed. In fact, you would still be sitting there. The person that represents the region of Alice Springs may not even live in Alice Springs. So you're asking someone that doesn't live in that community, it should be the community that makes the decision. And the Prime Minister proved it when he flew out there, the decision makers sit around the table yep. with the broader community, not a single person, but the broader community, and come up with a tailored solution for that community. But we've got to also acknowledge we've done a lot of good. I think we've closed the gap in many respects in some parts of the country that we should be proud of. Others, we've still got work to do, but we, we should be proud of some of the things we have achieved. Yeah, you're, you're and, dead you know, right. You're dead right. You know, in some of these communities, we've done a damn good job and our Indigenous Australians have, have led the way, but there has to be mutual obligation on it. No matter your colour, your creed, it is it is a, a privilege, not a right to get Australian taxpayers' money. And when you get it, you've got to make sure that you use it to, to live up and be a, a, a constructive member of society, and that's what we need to make sure that we provide that opportunity for Indigenous Australians and by putting another layer of bureaucracy, we'll not do that. And so we genuinely want to close the gap than that. We've taken this position. We have no malice, but we've just seen this before, and we just feel that remote Indigenous Australians will be the ones that don't have the voice again. Fantastic. Really appreciate your time this morning, David. As usual, have a good week in uh, Parliament in Canberra, and we'll catch up again with you shortly. Thanks so much for being with us. Leader of the National Party, David Littleproud. Thanks, mate. Good on you. We'll take a break. Come back with more. This is Rural Queensland today. Things happening across the state that I would thought we would like to pay our respects to the Everett family. Uh, Peter Everett was uh, Queensland Outback Queensland Tourism Association's first chairperson. He passed away peacefully on the Gold Coast yesterday. Uh, he was a stalwart of Outback Queensland Tourism and was awarded life membership of Outback Queensland Tourism Association in 2015. He recognised the early potential of tourism and events to diversify the local economy and strengthen the communities and was a loyal custodian of Winton's Royal Theatre for decades along with his late brother, Vince Everett. Peter served on the committee of Winton's Outback Festival for over 40 years, retiring to the Gold Coast with his wife, Joan. Both still visited Winton in September last year to celebrate their 50th anniversary of the festival, which had grown to become an iconic event. Outback Queensland uh, Tourism Association have extended their deepest sympathies to Peter and his family. That's very, very sad news from the world of the Outback. Valet to Peter Everett, OA. Uh, very, very sorry to hear that and one of Winton's greats. Big country Brahmin sales on and although there was a $2,000 in Charters Towers, a $2,000 difference from last year's average, 
136 Reds gross two million uh, for a clearance of 94 percent to average 14,731. And this has been reported. Uh, last year's results for the Reds um, was sixteen thousand seven hundred and five dollars. A interesting stat though. It was Brett Nobbs from Nobbs Cattle Company, who has been a regular on this show, who topped the sale yesterday. He had a bull um, that made plenty, this bull, and it was obviously a very, very good bull. Nico, NCC Nico, made 160000 and was the top price red. So... Eugene and Jess uh, Mollahan, Mountain Springs Brahmins Monto, in association with Les and Felicity Rockemeyer, um, Gigaman Pastoral Company, purchased the $160,000 bull. Um, it was a 25-month-old pole bull, and obviously Brett Nobbs does it right every single time, and he's obviously very, very capable when it comes to breeding quality, quality bulls. 160,000. The Greys will kick off. They're underway now as we speak. And obviously, we will have a full report for you tomorrow. But 166 Grey Brahmins. But at Chartist Towers, the big country sale is rolling along really nicely. A little bit down, $14,000 average uh, yesterday. But um, look, you know, the growth's very similar, uh, considering everything uh, being equal. Not a bad result um, by any means. Uh, now, the Country Live, and a lot of people will know this um, and know this truck stop very well near Mulmerin, um, Captain's Mountain Truck Stop, and the Country Light reported this uh, overnight that they are open again. Now, a lot of people have driven down through there and it's an iconic truck stop and it's been closed for two years. Now, it was near, it reopened late last year. Up The doors were closed from November 2020. So there hasn't been many facilities. If you're travelling from Gundawindi, to Toowoomba, there has not been many ways past or fuel stops. Well, it takes a Brisbane-based donor who just wanted to put some fresh fuel, fresh food, groceries, some amenities for a truck stop and truck drivers, and she's open. Unbelievable. 14 local staff members are working there now. On average, they'd have about 25 to 30 trucks coming through every day and plenty of cars. So it's been a a good news story and one where we would think that everybody, you know, you can see it. If it closes, you can rebuild it and they will come. So much to get through. First Queensland show done and dusted. I meant to talk about this the other day. So we talked about the shows and the good news is Stanthorpe, they kicked off the show season. So across Queensland, it's on the Southern Downs, I understand that, but the Stanthorpe show is done and dusted. Food, wine, sheepdog trials, and, of course, the sideshows, it all happened. Now, we've spoken to Brett Boatfield before and the challenges of having the first show every year. They pride themselves on making and setting the standard for the year. Now, remember, the show's all across Queensland after that. They have obviously had a very, very enjoyable uh, couple of days, and it was a huge success. So well done to the Stanthorpe Show Society. Uh, as I said, um, the big country sale is off and rolling and I will give you an update on the greys later. This is Rural Queensland today. We'll take a break, come back with more. 
Welcome back to Rural Queensland today on the Resonate Broadcast Network. It's Tuesday morning, the 7th of February. So much to get through this morning, and this is a great story. Uh, Queensland beef producers Tim and Amber Scott have absolutely had a game changer in their cattle business. They are at the cutting edge with what they have introduced onto their property. Tim, good morning. Thank you so much for being with us. Morning, Dolo. How's the Wide Bay Burnett area, mate? Obviously, at the moment, um, you know, been up and down, plenty going on. I reckon rain's coming in the next couple of days as well. Uh, how's the season been? Yeah, it is drying out. Um, we were wanting it to dry out, but it's stayed. Um, yeah, it's dried right out now. So anyway, I'm sure it's. We've got plenty of grass though, and it's, we're in a pretty good position really, so can't complain. Mate, um, yourself and your wife have done an amazing job putting in a system using tissue sample tags to trace the animal's every movement. Uh, biosecurity is such a huge issue um, in Australia, and we are trying to sell a clean, green, amazing product to the world. And the more data and the more information that we can get, the more we would hope the consumer understands and this is some cutting edge technology that you've bought into your operation can you start us from the beginning how you came up with this system and and what you're actually doing um i've got a traceability background i used to run one of the one of the traceability companies um i've also been involved in the trialing of quite a few of the nlis tags over the years and and stuff that didn't get into the nlis but um yeah so just been exposed to those sort of things over the years and i just always think with with these supposedly whole-of-life traceability systems, it's not really whole-of-life if there's a breakage somewhere and DNA is probably the only thing that, that prevents that breakage happening. So I've been trying to work out a way to link DNA into the system where it, and it's got its own problems. Um, tissue sampling and other types of DNA sampling have got issues as far as um, cross-contamination and sure. and human error. So we've just yeah, we've got a system now that um, takes all the, that away and um, further than just linking your DNA, which a consumer can can have a food safety issue, so we can take a swab of that of that DNA on the meat um, and link that back to two or three animals in a um, in a batch. So we don't have to go and do DNA analysis on hundreds or thousands of animals. We only have to do it on the ones that are affected in, in a case of a problem. Yep. But we can also integrate things like AgriWeb or, you know, software programs, which we can then show a, a whole of life. So every paddock movement, everything that animal has eaten over its whole life can be linked to that DNA sample through through RFID or, or visual tags as well. So, yeah, it's quite a we, – we have an organic beef business, but K2 Organic Beef, and we're really – you know, people are paying a bit of a premium and we want to be able to prove there's no substitution happening and prove that if there is an issue, we can prove down to the – the day where that animal has lived its whole life. So this will give real-time movement and this ticks every single box um, and, and to the point of that you could actually, if you had a box of beef that was overseas that was contaminated, you could categorically single out the animals that were in that box to the point of that you could and so the rest of the shipment could keep on going. That that to me is, is pretty – you know, cutting edge in the sense. Now, how difficult is it when you take a tissue sample? I mean, I remember when the day when NLIs came in and all the hoopa, and now it's just a part of life. Now, obviously, we're going to head somewhere along this way that we need to be able to have full traceability, and this is a long-term 
um, view of it, but how difficult is it from a uh, large cattle herd in the sense that if you were trying to do this for um, calves, I suppose, when you were branding and, and in these big operations, how difficult would that be? It takes you know, time to put in all visual tag in. The, the tag, this Casely system is just brilliant. Um, as they, as the tags are applied, um, the DNA sample snaps off from the applicator. Um, the chunk of ear that, or the piece of ear that comes out, which is your tissue sample, is is pushed into a preserved um, vial, which is thrown into a into a room temperature jar or whatever to, to fill the sample. Yep. Um, it, it, it honestly takes no more time than, than putting in a normal tag. So it's, that's that's the benefit of this particular system over the ones that are around at the moment. Um, yeah, we just found we just found this one so fast, and and, and also the vial. There's no um, issue with human um, interference because the vial is numbered the same as the tag. It has a barcode on it that can link to the tag. Uh, so those two sam- that, that animal and that um, and that sample are, are then linked um, forever through that. Uh, we don't have to go and get it and analyze. We can sit it at room temperature for you know two or three years. If there is an issue, we just find. Sure. A few animals that are it's appropriate um, to, to get those tested. So, okay, Tim Scott joining us this morning, uh, Queensland beef producer uh, with cutting edge technology. So, the duration of these animals is the the bile, the, the the sample, the tissue sample that you've got. That only is lasting approximately the duration of the the animal's life. Correct. So it goes into. Um, I don't know what the claim on it is, but it's supposed to be a lifetime traceability um, solution. So I, I think the, pre- the preservation, once it's preserved, it can last indefinitely, that, that sample. All right. So True Test have an indicator with it, and you can do all this through uh, management software, AgriWeb, um, with the real-time paddock movement records, so they're recorded as well. I understand all this. Cost-wise, is, is it is it cost-effective at the moment? Uh, the tag we use is about 5 bucks. It's a double-sided, large printed visual tag as well. So I don't think you know it might be a dollar or two more than what the yeah. equivalent visual marker visual tag is. But it's no, it's not excessive. How's it been received so far? I'm fascinated. I mean, if you went overseas, I think with this system and and you would just expect that it would be absolutely you know jumped on. They'd love it. How has it been received on the world stage so far? Well, it's we got it out of Northern Ireland. Um, it's used in there in their traceability system in, in the UK, I believe, um, to German system, this particular tissue sampling thing. Um, I don't know if that, you know, you know, in some countries they don't have the, the RFID linkage and, and that becomes critical when you're trying to scalably, you know, process cattle after the initial application time because sure. you need speed. Um, you can't just be doing it with visual tags. So I think we've got all the elements here that could probably make it a, um, a good overall solution. Um, there's a couple more steps that could happen to, to improve things even more, but it, it's used in, in Europe um, extensively, and I, I don't know if they have the benefits, though, that what we have of being able to know how to scalably um, use this sort of technology. Those sort of countries are pretty small numbers and don't understand speed. Yeah, you're dead right. You're dead right. Uh, very, very interesting. Uh, has it been – do you feel that this is the way forward, and has it been – Looked at by other people, and, and what are the Australian abattoirs saying about it? No, I don't. We don't. We, don't have, we haven't been promoting it or selling it. It's not really our product. We just found it, and we've been trying it out for the last three years. 
Um, retention wise, it is last it's going better than the NLIS tags um, significantly, probably ten to twenty percent better than NLIS tag, and that's and for a visual tag that's tremendous. Um, so abattoirs don't really have to be involved, or because it's just to do with the meat, the end consumer, yep, um, and us. So it's the abattoir link is purely that they make sure that that you know that your NLIS and your, and your body numbers are linked um, properly. Um, so that doesn't change anything that they do. Uh, so it's really between us and the consumer. And we've got a direct-to-market business with this organic beef, so we don't export. Um, but I, I know if we did, we would have a, a system that we've, we've talked to other customers about it in the last 12 months now that we're happy that it's all working well. And, you know, the peace of mind that they get that actually what they're buying is what they we can prove that what they're getting is what they're buying. So Sure. Sure. I'm pretty happy with it. Yeah. yeah, fantastic. Hey, listen, this is a great initiative. Thank you so much, Tim Scott. I really appreciate your time this morning. No, thanks, Dobby. Good on you. Great to chat. And look, it just shows um, anybody um, with an idea and a belief can change it. This is a phenomenal way forward and one that I think long-term will have a huge impact and effect on a lot of the beef industry when people go forward. This is Rural Queensland Today. We're on the Resonate Broadcast Network. We'll take a break, come back with more. Welcome back to Rural Queensland Today. It is Tuesday morning, the 7th of February, and Rural Doctors Association of Australia CEO, Miss Peter Rutherford, joins us this morning. And the Rural Doctors Association of Australia has welcomed the Strengthening Medicare Task Force report and we're looking to ensure that it addresses health needs of rural and remote Australians and the challenges delivering care to these regions. There's no two ways about it. It's in the headlights, Um, and the government need to take responsibility. And we spoke last week um, to uh, the RDAA president and also talked, have spoken to the Albanese government, and we've also spoken to the state government. The health system is on its knees regionally. There are people getting, unfortunately, having to have telehealth conferences out of rural and regional Queensland because of the shortage of doctors. And the government, it's on them. Good morning. How are you? I understand, Peter, that it's a very, very sensitive subject, but we need more GPs and you guys are doing everything you possibly can to get them in there. There just needs to be ways forward to make it enticing to get people to move to the bush. Good morning and thank you for having me. And I completely agree with you. You know, there is lots of challenges. It's about the structure um, of general practice and the funding model we have, but it's also about workforce initiatives. And I think we need the government at both state and federal level to be looking at both of those elements within the system. I don't think you can do Medicare funding reform um, without also doing a lot in the, the workforce um, initiatives and programs. So there, there's a bit of a balance. And while we welcome the report, it's high level. Um, but, you know, there's some good good references and terminology in there in relation to the rural situation. Um, but it's also really now important we get some detail on that. This is, this is the thing that I don't understand. You've got the state government and they backflipped at the end of last week after countless Cameron Dick had to, you know, he was right in the headlights, the Treasurer, Um, and that sort of gave a bit of relief. But we are not doing enough, and it must be frustrating, to make it uh, not viable, to make it a 
enjoyable experience for a doctor to choose country. And I understand these unbelievable universities in Townsville and that they're training and I understand the nursing facility at Charleville. I get all of that. I get all of that. But the, the, the bottom line is there's a shortage of GPs in the bush and this is across Australia. And when we're trying to keep our population and it's an ageing population, so people just don't go to the doctors, it's a vicious cycle. And so when they don't go to the doctors, they get sick. So then that obviously they have to travel and then that obviously clogs up the hospitals and, and it just keeps on going on and on and on and on. And it's a, a, a big circle. How do we get the government, and, it, and it's the, this government at the time, but don't worry, previous governments have been behind this as well, to actually understand just the importance and make it viable. Make some incentive that, you know, if you do choose rural, that we're going to give you some tax breaks. We're going to give you some affordability in housing. We're going to make it that you're not the only doctor there and we can get locums there. That's the that's the big issue because I, I and I'm sure I'm sure Peter, you're aware of this. We we are getting countless phone calls of people cutting their fingers off a Quilpie and no, no doctor there, and they had to have a telehealth conference in Brisbane. Knees in Augustella. It just goes on and on and on. We know the birthing situation. We, we've seen that debacle for the last couple of months and how that's been going on in Gladstone and what was going on in Rockhampton. How do we fix this? Well, I, I think it's, you know, it's never easy and it's not just about government. I think this is also about what's happening within the culture of medicine. We need to look at the culture that, you know, basically actively discourages young doctors from going rural. We often hear, That's right. you know, our yeah. members talk about, you know, oh, you're too smart for rural, you should do this, you should do that. Or why would you want to be a GP? You should be, you know, a surgeon. You should be an anaesthetist. So the culture of medicine is also an element that we have to address. Um, you know, the rural doctors, you know, that are out in St. George, that are in Roma, Charleville, Longreach, are amazing clinicians. They are great teachers, great supervisors, and highly skilled. And I think, you know, we need to look at what is in the system that prevents you know, people looking and understanding the opportunities in rural. So while we have these great universities, Queensland in particular has really big regional towns. And so what we're seeing is, you know, a lot of medical students having a rural experience, but the next part of their career is in Brisbane, it's in Toowoomba, it's in Townsville, Cairns, and they're in the biggest regional centres. And then it's about, well, how do we get them out into rural areas? We also need to look at things like the hospital management and having them take a community-wide approach to some of these solutions. And I'll, I'll name it. Emerald is a really good example. You've got a great GP practice in Emerald. He's a, you know, there's great supervision, great teaching. The hospital has, a, you know, a plethora of doctors and yet the GP practice who supports all of those young doctors struggles to get, you know, um, a workforce working in that practice. Now, that's unacceptable. So it's about government getting the settings right and looking at the funding model to make general practice in rural communities viable. But it's also about local hospital management taking a community approach. It's about, you know, providing opportunities for young doctors to have a really good rural experience in both the hospital and general practice. There's, there's lots of things you can do, and particularly in Queensland, you know, with, there's great opportunities for training, 
for careers which are well remunerated, which are, you know, interesting medicine, um, and yet, you know, we're still struggling. And I think, you know, there's lots of elements to this. The federal government's got a role, the state government's got a role, but so does local hospital management and the sorry, the hospital and health services yep. and community also has a role. Yeah, you did right. And you point out a really, really important thing and message, unbelievable. Um, so it, it is something that is a collective. Let's look at the wins. What are, we, what, what are the wins at the moment? Look, I think, you know, again, Queensland has some great foundations to build on. And if anything, you know, Queensland has been a leader in rural generalist training. Um, it set the, the standard to roll out a national program. Um, but we do need to look at the funding model for Medicare to ensure that rural general practice is sustainable and viable. We need to look at this sort of combination of, you know, uh, a funding model that sort of sets the, the foundation for general practice and maybe the fee-for-service sits on top of that. Um, but ensuring that, you know, the general practice can have a, a practice manager, a practice nurse, you know, um, access to allied health staff, working with pharmacists um, as well. So the multidisciplinary team in rural is essential, um, but we need the funding model to recognise that. Um, mm. But also, you know, keep a bit of that fee-for-service to ensure that it remains an efficient and effective um, system as well. Yeah, uh, what a fa- fantastic um, chat, and I'm so lucky and happy that you are there, Peter. Um, there is some really big challenges I don't wish your job at the moment. I've got to be honest with you because, I mean, you obviously have a lot of people ringing you and concerned and rightly so, but it is a challenge and it is something that we need ASAP and we need to make sure it's right. The Rural Doctors Association of Australia CEO, Ms. Peter Rutherford, I appreciate your time this morning and thank you. We'll talk again, no doubt, um, but thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thanks for having me. Good on you. We'll take a break, come back with more. This is Rural Queensland Today. That's it from us here this morning at Rural Queensland today on this very busy Tuesday, the 7th of February. Have a great day, Queensland. Ray Hadley to join you next. And remember, when the weed is ripe, keep the headers rolling in the paddock. We're back tomorrow morning from 9. Spotify, Rural Queensland today with Ben Dobbin is where you can catch up on any of the latest chats. And you can also get in contact with me, ben.dobbin at ruralqldtoday.com.au. Remember, when the weed is ripe, keep the headers rolling in the paddock. We'll see you tomorrow. Till next time, stay safe on the roads. It's bye for now.